this morning. Lord, we love you. Um, God, we ask that you would have your way in us today, that you'd strengthen our hearts, that you would let us know your love. Um, and we pray, Father, that your Holy Spirit would do a work in our hearts that only you can do, um, and that you would help us to encounter you through the power of your word, the power of your spirit, uh, and help us, to, help us to embrace fellowship with you. Help us not to hide from you. Help us to lean into it. Whatever things, Lord, keep us distant in fear, we pray, God, that uh, you would remove those things, that you would do that work in our hearts. Lord, we thank you that you know how to navigate our hearts even better than we do. Um, our hearts are wicked above all else, and who can understand them? But you can. You're greater than our heart. And we thank you for that, Father, and we just cling to that promise this morning and ask that you would make it real in our lives. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Good morning. Thanks for being here. If you've got your Bibles, go to John chapter 14. Uh, that is where we will be eventually. However, uh, as you can see, you may have missed it because I know in all the barn decor, the feed trough looks like uh, it fits, but we're actually going to baptize some folks this morning. And uh, before we get started this morning, I'm going to invite one of them, uh, Leanne Miller, to come and just share briefly her testimony. And I want everybody here to just give her a round of applause, to thank her. It could be a daunting thing to get up on this stage, and I want to thank her for being willing to share what God has done in her life. Hold on a second, Lynn. Is it on? Okay, he says it is. Never. Okay. There you go. Hi, my name is Leah Miller. I grew up in a wonderful Christian home with my dad, mom, two sisters, and three brothers. School years were definitely really hard for me, which led to comparison, jealousy, um, putting a lot of pressure on myself. Depression and not feeling worthy were very familiar feelings for me. At the age of 15, I started not eating and isolating myself. I became weaker and finally ended up in the hospital where I was treated with an eating disorder. With lots of encouragement from friends and family, I was able to overcome and slowly regain my strength. Going through teenage years of people pleasing, blaming myself, and comparison, I was burdened with guilt and shame. I realized I wasn't living for the Lord, and with that, I made bad choices I'm not proud of today. I finally hit rock bottom, and I begged God for forgiveness and truly believing in him. I began seeking a relationship with Jesus in a way I had never had before. I became very aware of my sinful state and the power of Christ's death on the cross. I felt his love in an overwhelming way. I am so thankful for his forgiveness and love in my life today. Um, one of my favorite Bible verses is 1 Peter 5, 7. Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Carrying my worries, stress, and my daily struggles by myself showed that I didn't tr <coughs> trust God fully with my life. It took humility, however, to recognize that God cares to admit my needs to let others in his family help me. Sometimes I thought that struggles caused by my own sin and foolishness were not God's concern. 
But when I turned to him in repentance, he bared the weight even of those struggles. I learned that letting God have my worries was active, not passive. Don't submit to circumstances, but to the Lord who controls circumstances. Amen. Thank you, Lydia. Amen. Um, I, uh, Leanne was originally maybe going to share that at the end of the message today and then listen to her share that this morning uh, before the service. I liked her one little phrase there she used at the very end about, and I, and I kept asking you to repeat it this morning because I knew I'd forget it again, but what she said about trusting being not just a passive process but an active process. Right? It's not just something that we do one time, but this life that we now live in Christ, we live by faith, and um, it's by faith from first to last, the Bible says, is that we started off trusting the Lord, and there's an actual moment of salvation where the Holy Spirit comes into us and transforms us, but from there, the rest of the Christian life is just that same thing, actively trusting him. And it's that active trust that Jesus is calling for here in this passage in John chapter 14. We're just going to jump right in and kind of walk through it. Uh, That act of trust is addressed right away in verse 1. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Um, As I said a couple weeks ago, this passage, the Upper Room Discourse that we're reading together as a church family here in these weeks leading up to Easter, it's all one long conversation, and it's uh, John spends almost a quarter of his gospel that he wrote um, on just a few hours, one long extended conversation that he spent with the disciples, and um, there is an intimacy that Jesus offers us here uh, in this passage that I, I said a couple weeks ago when we were in John 13 makes us a little bit uncomfortable, but it's an also, also an intimacy now here, especially in 14, mingled with a little bit of an, in, an intensity. Intimacy and intensity. Um, they have shared a meal together. If you recall back in chapter 13, the Last Supper, uh, Jesus uh, has spoken that one of them is going to betray them. We know that it's Judas from the commentary that John gives, and most of us know how this story kind of goes, um, that Judas, uh, one of his closest associates, is going to betray him with a kiss. Um, as Proverbs 27, 6 says, better wounds from a friend than kisses uh, of an enemy. And Judas is going to even though he was in Jesus' closest circle, um, he's going to betray him. Not only is Judas going to betray him, but uh, Peter is going to deny him. Um, he's told them this uh, in the last couple verses of John chapter 13, leading here into verse 14. And so in verse 14, when he's calling them to believe, when he's calling them to actively trust, as Leanne put it, um, he says it because their hearts are troubled. And their hearts are troubled, though, um, for kind of a unique reason is that on the one hand they're confused they don't understand what Jesus is saying in talking about this that he's going to leave and again back in chapter 13 verse 33 it's he says where I'm going you cannot follow well up until this point everything he said is follow me follow me follow me follow me when he first called him he said follow me and now he's saying where I'm going you cannot come and so they're troubled because of that they're troubled because they're confused they're troubled because one is going to betray him another one is going to deny him they're all going to scatter but not only are their hearts troubled 
their hearts, because of those things, but their hearts are also troubled because, and this is kind of um, maybe hard for us to believe or to understand, but I want, you, I, want, I want you to see this again back in chapter 13, is because Jesus' heart is troubled. And because Jesus' heart is troubled, their hearts are also troubled. Verse 21 of chapter 13 says, after these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit. And testified, truly I say to you, one of you is going to betray me. And what's happening here is this, what theologians call the great exchange. Is that we know that on the cross, Jesus died as our substitute. He died in our place. The punishment that we deserved was placed upon him. And what you see here in these few hours, especially as John highlights in his gospel, is this exchange beginning to happen where the trouble, the punishment for sin is going to come upon the sinless son of God. The perfect lamb that was slain. And so Jesus becomes troubled. He never sinned. He never sinned. But the Bible says that he was tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. And it's going to go on even to the place where he's praying in the garden. He's eventually going to be so troubled that he's sweating drops of blood. That is an intensity that I don't think you or I have ever really faced or tasted of. But it's because the sin of the world, the entire world from the very beginning, from Adam and Eve, it is beginning to be placed upon the light of the world. To the place where eventually at the cross, at noon, in the Middle East, where the sun is usually pretty bright, the sun is going to go dark. And it was a physical manifestation of the fact that the light of the world was now covered in darkness with our sin. And so Jesus is troubled, and it's a troubled heart speaking to troubled hearts, the hearts of his disciples. And yet while Jesus' heart is troubled, in a sense, Jesus, is, his trouble is a little bit different from the disciples in that he knows that while there is reason for trouble, there are even greater reasons for hope. I want you to hear that. That's what I want you to get this morning that there are a lot of reasons for trouble, the ultimate reason being, and then it manifests itself in a bazillion different ways, the ultimate reason being because of sin. And sin causes a lot of troubles in marriages and in families and in relationships and in our personal lives and in addictions and in doubt and in worry and in fear, words that we say, things that we do, things that we take, things that we steal. The list goes on and on. But while there's plenty of reason to be troubled, there's even more reason for hope. And Jesus is going to share these reasons for hope with his disciples. And it's what I want us to get this morning. There's about three or four of them. And I say three or four because in reality there's like 20 in this passage. But we, don't, we only have reason, or we only have time, sorry, for about three or four. And so I just want to begin to read in John chapter 14 and kind of point them out along the way. He says, let not your heart be troubled. Believe, believe. Believe in God. He's saying, you believe in God. Believe in me. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that I go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. One of the great reasons that we have to have hope in the midst of trouble, even though the trouble is real, 
because of sin. First is that we, we are not forsaken. We are not forsaken. This imagery here, if I can just real quick, it is so rich and so beautiful. I told you a couple weeks ago that where Paul writes like a lawyer, John tends to write like an artist. A couple of months ago, Hannah and I went down to a Van Gogh exhibit at the Columbus Art Museum. And I'll be honest, like I'm, I'm the least artsy person in the world. My, even my stick figures are bad. That's no exaggeration. I just can't do it. Hannah can draw. Uh, two of my boys can draw. Um, and I just, I don't understand how they, how they do it. I try to do it, um, and it just doesn't work. But the, the art museum uh, and this Van Gogh exhibit, it was, it was pretty cool. Even though I'm not an artist and that stuff usually doesn't pull me in. And I, it's like seeing it in person uh, the illustration I use, it's kind of like the difference between listening to your favorite band on Spotify in your car and going and seeing them in concert. It's just richer, it's fuller, it's more robust, and you could see kind of the different you know, textures and nuance to the colors and those different things. And I say all that because there's, there's some nuance and texture here in these couple verses that's, that's very, very beautiful. In, in saying... Jesus says, in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself. This, this language here is, is undoubtedly that of a Jewish wedding. And it's something that gets missed on, missed on us. And, and again, it's, um, it's there regardless of whether you understand this or not. It's just, this just kind of brings it out in more living color, I guess. With more texture, more more richness. But here's the way a Jewish wedding would work is that you would go and you would become betrothed or engaged, okay? But at the moment of betrothal, uh, you, were, you were like legally married. This is why when Mary and Joseph, you remember, they became betrothed, but then when Mary became pregnant, Joseph was about to divorce her. And you're like, well, they weren't even really married yet. Well, in that culture, they were. And so what would happen is, is that um, the families would come together and the marriages would, would you know, kind of be arranged in that day. And what they would do is, instead of putting a ring on the finger, as we do today, they would both drink from the same cup. They would drink from the same cup and the families would agree and there would be a, 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 a dowry, a bride price agreed upon. And, um, and then they would agree. And, and then there's that, so there's that moment of betrothal and they're legally married. And interestingly enough, they just had this supper where they drank from the same cup with Jesus. But then after that, there was this period of waiting. And it was a period of about 12 months, okay? So you knew roughly the time, but you didn't know the exact date. And, it's, and so during that time, the bride would be getting herself ready. And you can read about this in like Song of Solomon. There's some different little nuggets in the Old Testament where you see this. And she would, you know, perfume herself and get herself ready and beautiful for the next 12 months, knowing that her groom was going to come back and get her. During that time, however, while the bride is making herself as beautiful as she knows how, <laughs> the groom would go away and he would prepare a place, usually at his father's house, like, you know, because again, it was kind of an um, ancestral, uh, you know, community and there were different um, um, generations living together. And so he would begin to prepare a house, like in the, as a neighbor beside the, the Doughty house, you know what the Doughty house is, that idea, um, <clears throat> back in, in that day, he would prepare a place and in 12 months, he's going to go get his bride. And so you see this in different parables that Jesus spoke of, like the parable of the 12 virgins, different things. And after about 12 months, the bride didn't know exactly when it was going to happen. But all of a sudden, the groom would get his, get his homeboys, the groomsmen, and they would come riding off. 
And they would come to get the bride. And so the bride had to be on her toes. She had to be ready. And she knew about when it was going to happen, but she wasn't fully sure. And he would go and get his bride and her bridesmaids and bring them to the wedding party. And it was a big procession and a big party. And then he would take her into himself, into the home that he had prepared. And they would consummate the marriage. And I'm telling you, like, you think we party hard? The Jewish people knew how to party because God commanded them to party, and they would party for seven days. Woo, come on, somebody. <laughs> Seven-day party. They would go in, they would consummate the marriage, they would come back out, and they would celebrate with everybody. And this is almost certainly the language, the nuance of language that Jesus is using here. You're not forsaken. In our culture, we might say, you might feel like you're a bride left standing at the altar, but, but we're not. He is coming for us. If that were not so, he would not have told us. He says, he always keeps his word. We are not forsaken. And so while there is trouble in this world, he starts off here with like the promise of all promises. He's going to go on later on in this passage. He's going to say, in this life you will have much trouble. But take heart. I have overcome this life. I've overcome this world. He's coming to get us again. We are not forsaken. And he's going to take us, I love that there in verse 3, to himself. As Mark said this morning, there's nothing beyond worship. There's nothing beyond being with Jesus. What we do here when we come together to worship, this is, this is not a means, it is an end. It is the end of all ends that we will do forever in heaven. We will be with him. That where I am, there you may be also. Secondly, not only are we not forsaken, but we're not lost. We're not lost. Look, look what happens here. Verse four, then he says, you know the way to where I am going. <laughs> and I just appreciate this because it's so true to life. It's like Jesus says something really clear. You know the way. And you're like, no, I do not know the way. I, I don't understand. That's exactly what Thomas does. You know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said, Lord, we do not know the way to where you're going. How can we know the way? Have you ever felt that way? <laughs> it seems so clear on the one hand that at other times you're like, I don't understand <laughs> This Christian life, it's confusing. I don't get it. Um, and then the, probably one of the most famous verses in the Gospel of John, maybe in all the, of the Bible, verse 6, Jesus responds to Thomas saying, Lord, we don't know the way. After Jesus just told him, you do know the way. Jesus says, I am the way. The truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is, this is one of seven I am statements in the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John, especially the first half, is built around seven signs, seven miracles that Jesus did. Um, we, we, we talk about this, and we talked about this a couple weeks ago uh, when we were in John chapter 13, that, that verses, or chapters 1 through 12 are primarily built around these seven signs, but also these seven I am statements. And here's the sixth one. There's another one coming next week where he says, I am, I am the true vine. Um, throughout the Gospel of John, he said, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. Uh, and next week, he's going to say, I am the true vine. Here he says, I am the way. I am the way. Now these, again, John writing as an artist, there's so, so much nuance to this, and, and you could just spend 
hours and days just unpacking all the little details that he throws in here. But this idea of, of Jesus being the I am, and specifically these seven, and seven being God's number of completeness, that he is completely everything that we need, okay, as God. You'll remember that when God revealed himself to Moses at the burning bush, Moses says, who, you know, God says to, to, to Moses, go tell Pharaoh that I want you to, uh, that I want him to let my people go so that they can come out and worship me. And Moses is like, who am I supposed to tell Pharaoh sent me? And God says to Moses, tell them I am sent you. And so Jesus here in saying this, I am, I am, I am this, I am this, I am this, he's, he's relating it to God the Father to the place where, if you'll jump over to chapter 18, just really quickly, chapters 18, verse 1 through 9, um, this is now after the upper room discourse, and they're now coming, Judas, with his band of hoodlums to arrest him. It says, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook of the Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, who also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. When Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. And when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. But here's the deal. In the original language, we, we fill that in with English because it doesn't make sense. But what Jesus literally just said to them is he says, who are you after? Who are you here for? Don't think for a second that Jesus was at this point scared and was like running and just kind of sheepishly went forward. They say, who are you? he says, who are you here for? They say, Jesus of Nazareth. He says, I am. Boom, and they fall backwards. He's like, get up. I said, who are you here for? And again, they say, Jesus of Nazareth, I am. I am. Jesus, uh, Jesus am for us. I know it's bad English. All that we'd ever need. He is for us. He be for us. How do you like that? He be for us. All that we ever need. And here specifically in this text, Lord, we're lost. We, we don't know the way. You're not lost. You're not lost. Listen to me. I know at times we feel lost. Can you just raise your hand if you ever felt lost? I know that we feel lost. You're not lost. Not if you know Jesus. That's what he's saying. And again, let's, let's go on here. There's, there's more to this. Again, we just, we could spend so much time on this, but he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The, the, all of life is found in the Father. And Jesus says, I am the way to the Father. Verse 7, if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. And again, just like Jesus says, you know the way. Thomas says, we don't know the way. Jesus says, yes, you know the way. I'm the way. Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've, you've seen the Father. Philip says, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough. Verse 9, Jesus said to him, I have, have I been with you for so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? 
We run around like chickens with our heads cut off, acting like we're lost, acting like we have no resource, acting like we don't know what to do when we know the way, the truth, and the life, when we know what the creator of the universe is like because we know Jesus. And to see Jesus is to see the Father. If you've ever wondered, what would God do in this situation? What is God like if you were here on the earth? Jesus. That's the answer. Jesus came to show us the Father. Throughout the Old Testament, the, the glory of God is, is like the pinnacle of everything that there is. To, to be with him, to again, as it was before sin in the garden where he would walk with his creation in the cool of the day and he would be with them and fellowship with them. That's what we're trying like, to get back to. That's the huge, massive obstacle throughout the whole narrative of Scripture. But the problem is we are sinners and God is holy and and his holiness is so bright, it is so beautiful, flaming in glory that it consumes sinners. And so how how are we going to get there? Through Jesus. He came to make another way. And and this has been John's whole point. Again, going back, um, John weaves all these little beautiful little clues together throughout his gospel. But back in John chapter 1, Verses 14 through 18. It says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Now you, you got to understand, like Moses at one point told God, God, show me your glory. Remember the story up on the mountain? And God's like, I, I, Moses, you'll die. That was his response. It's like, I can't show you my, my glory, Moses. You're, you're, you're going to die. And so he goes, I'll, I'll hide you here in the cleft of the rock. And, and essentially what it says is that God makes all of his goodness or all of his glory pass by him. And then he takes his hand away and, and, God, and Moses kind of looks and he sees where God just was. And in seeing where God just was or seeing God's back, Moses comes down off the mountain with his face glowing. Intense, right? Crazy. And yet what John is saying here is that the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory, not just the back of his glory or where his glory just was, but we have seen his glory. When we say that Jesus is the answer, that's exactly what I mean. He is enough. We want to act at times like we're lost. And I just, again, like I've been there a thousand times. But Jesus is the way, folks. And if we have seen him, we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And John's going to go on here and he's going to compare, make this comparison between Jesus and Moses because he wants us to see it. It says, John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's right side, he has made him known to us. This is why Jesus came, to make known to us the glory of the Father. We're not forsaken, we are not lost. There's a better way than the way of Moses. There's a better way than the way of the law. But the way is not a path, it's a person. It's Jesus. Third, we're not forsaken. 
Like a bride standing at an altar, we're not lost because we don't know the way. We're also not helpless. We're not helpless. Now, again, I, you know, there, I have to pick and choose what we do here, but just read with me. We're going to skip over a little bit of a portion, but I just want to read it. Verse 10, do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak of my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I'm going to the Father. Just not part of my point here, but just in commenting on this, I don't know how you get, I don't know how you can be greater in terms of like, more awesome or awesomer. I'm using great English here this morning. Um, but uh, I, like, I don't know how, you, when Jesus speaks of great here, he's not speaking, to, like how do you get more great than rising from the dead or raising from the dead? How, how do you get more awesome than walking on water? Um, how do you get more awesome than just saying stop and the storm stops? Like when he's using the word greater here, he's not, he's not speaking in terms of like grandiose. So you can't get any more grandiose than what Jesus did. But in, in ter- when he speaks of greater, he's speaking in terms of um, of numerically, more numerous, that his church, his disciples, his people are going to do more abundant works in the sense of many because the the Holy Spirit is going to come and fill each one of us and God is going to do his work through us all over the world. And that's what's been happening for 2,000 years and he's going to roll into the Holy Spirit here in just a second. Verse 13, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do that my Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. So why will we do these greater works? Because we have access now to the Father who is greater than all through prayer because of what Jesus did. So as we pray, his people walk in these greater works that he wants to accomplish. Now, verse 15, he says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments and I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper. Everybody say helper. Helper. Um, Greek word is paraclete. Uh, Different English translations, depending on what you have, it might might have counselor. It might have advocate. Um, The reason there's different English words translating the word paraclete is because no one English word perfectly captures everything uh, that is necessary here. I want you to jump over also to verse 26. Actually, 25 and 26. Jesus says, these things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the helper, again the paraclete, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So again, we are not forsaken, we are not lost. Hear me, we are not helpless. Now I want to qualify this correctly because next week, like we're going to look at John chapter 15, and Jesus is going to say in there very clearly, apart from me, you can do nothing. So there is a sense in which we are helpless, apart from him. But again, what he's saying is, if you know him, if you've simply believed in him, you are not helpless, not because you're so awesome, but because the Holy Spirit, God himself, the third person of the Trinity, lives in you. We want to run around like we're a bride left standing at the altar, like we've been forsaken. We want to run around sometimes like we're lost and we don't know where to go when actually we know the way. And sometimes we want to act like we have no resource, like we're helpless, but we are not. And, and especially, 
to the three of you, Leanne and Tim and Aurora, I want all of us to remember this, but as you get baptized today, I want you to remember for the rest of your life, you are not alone. You are not helpless. You're going to get baptized not in order to come into right relationship with Jesus, but because you have already come into right relationship with Jesus by grace through faith. The moment that happens, the Holy Spirit who is already drawing you to himself comes and makes his home in you. As Jesus is going to go on to talk about here in just a second and we'll look at. He will never leave you. Ever. Doesn't matter what you feel like. Doesn't matter what you do. Doesn't matter how much you doubt or how worried you are. He will not leave you. We are not without help. Um, and it's, and it's, a, it is a, it's a helpful help. Boy, I'm really struggling with English this morning and words that make sense, but it's a good, it, it's a help unlike any other help. This word paraclete, um, if I can unpack it just briefly, it, it's, it, it's used in a legal sense, however, not in a legal sense like where we would necessarily think of like a lawyer per se, although that, that kind of applies. But it's kind of like, a lawyer who would be your best friend as well. It's, I've, on a few occasions, um, I have had to testify in court, usually as a pastor over um, different child custody battles when there's a divorce or something like that. Uh, it's not very fun. But I, just a couple times, have had to get up and I just, um, just try to plead my case for usually the child, but then also uh, for whatever parent is trying to, trying to follow Jesus still. Um, I, I can do my best to do that, yet the thing that I lack is any sort of legal expertise. Okay, like if you want legal advice, I'm not your guy. <laughs> okay, just saying. Um, but I'll plead my case for you. And, and I say that, and I differentiate between that, between kind of like a friend that testifies on your behalf, saying that you're a good person, that you're honest, that you can be trusted, and yet a lawyer who can navigate all the nuance of the law and what is really right and true. And, and, and so if you're seeing those two ideas, paraclete is both. He's the one that inspired the scriptures. He's the one that inspired the law. Okay? Jesus, the living word, is now going back to heaven, but the same spirit that, and, and again, um, Sinclair Ferguson, in commenting on, the, on this passage and talking about the, the Holy Spirit being our helper, our paraclete, he, he, it's, kind of a, it's kind of simplistic, yet it, 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 it's so true. He says that throughout Jesus' entire existence, but especially his time on earth, the Holy Spirit has been his best friend. He was there at his conception, he was there when he was tempted in the wilderness. He led him in to the wilderness and helped him face the temptations of the devil. He was there at his baptism like a dove. And now, Jesus' best friend, yet also the expert in the law that wrote the law, wrote the word, he comes and he's not just going to be with us like Jesus was, as awesome as that would have been, but he's going to be in us. And I say all that and you're like, what does that even mean? I... I I'll be honest with you, I, I, I'm not even sure I fully know. But the point is, it's really awesome. <laughs> and when I say you've got, 
your help is a really good help, this is what I mean. This, is, this isn't help like I could give you legally. Like if you find yourself in court, like I'll, I'll come do what I can, but it's only gonna be so much. The Holy Spirit gives perfect help. He knows the mind and heart of God. He knows what God's will is. He wants to daily fill you and lead you to a life that looks like Jesus. He's in you. Um, we're gonna, we'll talk more about the Holy Spirit as we go through these chapters. Um, this summer, for those of you that call Mercy Hill home, we're gonna be doing a 10-week series on our doctrinal statement. We'll branch off into a lot of things. I, just in passing here is kind of, a, kind of a sidebar. I wanna say this is that there's been so much abuse regarding the Holy Spirit. There's been a lot of really weird, bizarre, sinful things done in the name of the Holy Spirit. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. And here's, here's the, here's the, there's a bunch of ways to discern what is of, truly of the Spirit and what is not. As John says in his epistle, 1 John, he says that we're to test the spirits to know whether or not it's the real Holy Spirit. But, but the main way is, is the Holy Spirit always wants to exalt Jesus. And in contrast, what I mean by that is in always wanting to exalt Jesus, the Holy Spirit does not want to exalt man. The Holy Spirit is given to us to make much of Jesus and to help us make much of Jesus with our lives. And so we're given this very real help. Um, Again, we, we don't have time for everything, but he will be with us forever. Verse 16. Verse 26. Again, he's the one that inspired and wrote the truth, but he will lead us into all truth. Verse 26. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. We are not without help, we're not forsaken, we are not lost. We are not helpless. And fourthly, and we'll wrap up here, we are not orphans. We are not orphans. Again, right in the context of uh, talking about the help of the Holy Spirit here, look at verse 17. He says, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. And he's referring there just in the not too distant future to the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit's going to come like a rushing mighty wind from heaven. Whew. Wind and fire, two of the most powerful forces on earth. He's going to fill us with real power to help us live a life that exalts Jesus. And verse 18, he says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Now there's some debate here again. John in writing as an artist, sometimes both things are true. But when he says, I will come to you, most scholars, even conservative scholars, believe that what he's speaking of here, when he says, I will come to you, he's speaking of coming by the power of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost. And so understand here that he's not just, like earlier on when I said you're not forsaken, that we're not a bride left standing at the altar. We're still in that season of waiting for the bridegroom to come back and to come and to consummate all things and to consummate the marriage with the church. But this here is something different. When he says, I will not leave you as orphans, it's not like, yeah, I'm an orphan, I'm an orphan now, and then one day when Jesus comes back, I won't be. No, that's not what he's saying. 
He's saying right now, you are not orphans. Because, and he goes on here, he says, yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live. You also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father. Look how he weaves all these things together. I am in the Father. So Jesus saying, I'm, in that day when the Holy Spirit comes, you'll know that I'm seated at the Father's right hand. So what happened. Jesus ascends into heaven then pours out the Holy Spirit. I am in the Father and you in me and I in you. Okay? Is that our life is united with Christ. And the greatest mystery and yet central to literally everything in the Christian life is this truth, is that our life is united with his. It's, it's central to all of Paul's teaching. Um, Paul, I think I've shared this with you before, but if you would take all of Paul's letters that he wrote that we have in the New Testament and put them together as like one book, you might have 100 pages, maybe. Yet, in all of his writings, throughout his letters, he uses this little phrase, in him, in Christ, in Jesus, in the beloved. He uses that little phrase somewhere between 130 and 150 times. So if you have a 100-page book and 130 to 150 times on those 100 pages, he's saying, in him, in Christ, talking about our union with him, you might think that's the theme of the book. That's the theme of the book. <laughs> We're united with him. His Holy Spirit is in us, and we are in him. But why orphans? Why, why orphans? Why that language? Why, why, or why is he saying we're not as orphans? Um, one of the things with orphans, uh, kids that have been adopted, is that they can have a hard time believing that their home, when they're finally, formally, legally adopted, is going to be their final home. And understandably so. Uh, sorry. Um, you guys know our, our youngest one was, we'd, we adopted him, and you know, one of the things we'd, we'd have to say a lot is, this, is, this isn't just another home, because he'd been in a lot of homes. <laughs> he'd had a lot of mommies and daddies. But we'd say, yeah, but this is your forever home. It's not going to be another home to this one. This is your forever home, where you're forever mommy and daddy uh, and Jesus died to save us from our sins and that the Holy Spirit could be with us and make his home in us uh, see verse 23 Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Now again, this is not repeat of what he said back in verses two and three. He is preparing for us a place as a groom preparing it for his bride. But in the meantime, 
We are not orphans because the Father, the Son, and the Spirit have come to make their home in us. Giving us that promise that we have a forever home. And that we don't have to be afraid. And that's the battle. If you've ever adopted kids, uh, it, it's the battle. And it's understandable. It's not their fault. You get jerked around from a lot of different homes, you're going to struggle and wonder if the last one's real. But if I could just say this, and not trying to be overly dramatic here, but I, because of sin, because of sin, again, we're all guilty and we're all perpetrators, but you've heard me say this before, but we're all also victims. And, uh, and we've all been jerked around a lot. And because of sin, I think even those of us that know Jesus as our Savior, we still have kind of, if you will, an orphan spirit. That we just, is this, is this for real? Does he really... Like, does he really love me? Because I've been really bad again. And I really messed up again. And I don't know. And all I would say that is, is I think all of us could relate to that on some level. And we've been there at different times in our life. And what I would just want to leave you with is that in this passage, Jesus is saying it's not the case. You have a forever home. Um, in fact, uh, I don't know if you guys are into memorizing scripture or not, but let's just do it together here, okay? You'll leave here today having been able to say that, hey, I memorized a verse today. How about that? Verse 18. This is ESV. I don't know if you can throw that up there, Conrad. Chapter 14, verse 18. Let's memorize this together. I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. Let's say that again. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. One more time. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Okay, don't cheat. Close your eyes. So we got to memorize it. Ready? I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Boom, you just memorized a verse. When the doubt sets in this next week, and the love of God seems distant, and you wonder if you're still accepted, I want you to say that verse out loud. Jesus promises you, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Amen? Um, if you guys are getting baptized, or for, or for those of you that are getting baptized, you can get up and go out the secret doorway, which Alan Zink is guarding in the back there. But... <laughs> He'll let you through. Don't worry about it. Um, as we close the day, guys, um, and as we get ready to, to baptize these folks that have given their life to Jesus, um, as we, in just a little bit, are going to put them in the water, bring them down, bring them back up, a couple things. Number one, they have died with Christ and they have been raised with him. There's been a miracle that's happened in their hearts. That the old them, the old Tim, the old Leanne, the old Aurora, they died. And have been raised new with Christ. 
And because they're now new in their spirit and in their heart and on the inside, one day when they die outwardly, and for all of us that know Jesus, they don't really die, but they will be raised. They will be raised with him. Secondly, the reason we don't just sprinkle or we don't just pour is because we don't believe that's the picture of what Jesus did to our sins. Pouring or sprinkling wouldn't be enough to get rid of my sin. It had to all be washed away. So we sit them down in the tank, we take them all the way down, and we bring them all the way back up because all the sins have been washed away. Past, present, and future. They have a forever home in Christ, positionally, with him. And lastly, as, especially as we're, we talk about the Holy Spirit here this morning, and as we're going to be talking about him more in these chapters um, over the next couple of weeks, uh, there, there's a beautiful picture, too, of they're going to sit in the water, go down, come back up. So when they come up, they're going to be wet, Right? <laughs> And it's going to be dripping off of them. They're going to be soaked. In fact, I don't think they could get wetter than what they're going to be. Right? I want us to pray. For those of you that call Mercy Hill home, I want us to pray that we individually, but, but as a church, would be saturated, would be dripping with the power and presence and purity of the Holy Spirit. As they get up and they take steps out of that tank, they're going to leave footprints (laughs) as they go back and change. Um, I want us to be so saturated with him and with his presence that we leave footprints where we go, not for our glory, not so people say, oh, these guys are so spiritual, or oh, look at these guys, aren't they so holy? No, that we would make much of Jesus with our lives. Uh, that's why Jesus gave the Holy Spirit, and that's what the Holy Spirit wants to do, is to make much of Jesus. Amen? With me? Let me just pray for you. Lord, I pray for everybody here this morning. I pray that you would let them know that they are not forsaken. I pray again that you would let them know that they are not lost. Pray that you would let them know that they are never without help. I pray that you would let them know that they are not orphans. Pray that for my own heart as well, Lord. You know how desperately I need it and you know how quickly I forget it and struggle to trust it. Have your way today. Thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen.